0: Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. If you're visiting with us, um, we usually go verse by verse through books in the Bible, and right now we're working our way through the book of Romans, and we just finished chapter eight, but um, every Sunday that marks a new year, it's our uh, tradition as a church to just pick a new year theme and use that as uh, the subject of the Word of God, and that's what we're doing today. And so um, today's theme is seven reasons for optimism in the new year. And let me explain why we're looking at that particular topic. If you're looking for reasons for optimism, don't watch the news and don't read the news Here's just a snippet of some recent headlines. In the New York Post, um, they uh, reported on a recent poll, and in that poll it says that 56% of respondents said the country is headed off on the wrong track compared to 34% who feel the U.S. is going in the right direction. It's quite a disparity, 22 points. And then there's a Monmouth University poll that says a majority of Americans say they feel worn out by how COVID has impacted impacted their daily lives and nearly half feel angry about it. And then the uh, U.S. News and World Report reported on a poll that says that Americans are more pessimistic about life returning to normal, and so it goes. Uh, Lots more negativity. Domestically, internationally, people are feeling very pessimistic these days, and uh, it's good for us as Christians to, uh, to remember why the Lord has given us reason for great hope, and it's not just positive thinking. It's not just uh, trying to force ourselves to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. No, the Bible from front to back, beginning to end, gives Christians many, many reasons for optimism at the beginning of a new year and and always. And um, we're going to limit ourselves to, to seven. There's a lot more that we can say, but... We're going to look at seven briefly. So why should we as believers be optimistic at the beginning of a new year? Well, number one, we have the best news in the history of the world. And of course, that best news is the message of the gospel itself. And uh, I will refresh your memory of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So a few months ago, we looked at this passage. The Apostle Paul there wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's a couple of clues in that passage as to why the gospel, the Christian message, is the best news in the history of the world. First of all, because of what it says. It says that sinners like us who don't deserve God's mercy, who do not deserve salvation, yet sinners like us can be declared righteous by God through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation that God grants us is an eternal salvation that transcends every conceivable circumstance in life, every pandemic, every economic downturn, every uh, trial and tribulation that we might experience, our salvation transcends all of those things, and it's all based on what Jesus has done, and it's not based on what we have done or ever will do or any other mere creature. It's, It's incredibly good news. And then secondly, because of its power, Paul calls the message of the gospel the power of God for salvation. It is guaranteed to succeed, not in our purpose, but in God's purposes. The message of the gospel will ultimately accomplish the purpose for which God has sent it. And uh, here's a familiar passage, Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where God assures us, my word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. No wonder the, Bible, the message of the gospel is the best news in the history of the world. All kinds of plans fail All kinds of messages fall perpetually on deaf ears, but not the message of the gospel. It's the best news, and it will accomplish God's purposes. And uh, for that, because of that, we should be optimistic. Secondly, all things will work together for our good. Who knows what 2022 has in store? On January 1st, 2021, we didn't know what that new year uh, had in store for us. That's just the nature of time. And we certainly don't know what 2022 has in store for us. But one thing we know for certain, and that is that whatever we face in this new year, God is going to cause it all, good and bad, to work together for our good. And you remember the passage... Romans chapter 8. I won't spend much time there because we just looked at it recently. But Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that's a very important qualification Romans 8.28 Romans 8.28, the promise that all things work together for good. Uh, that promise is not for everyone. We can't just say that indiscriminately. Uh, Paul is very specific. It, it, it applies to those who love God. And by the way, the reason that we love God is because we are called according to his purpose. Because we don't love God naturally. We're naturally dead in our trespasses and sins. We're naturally alienated from God. We're naturally, and it's hard to hear, enemies of God because of our sin. And so God has to do a work in us first. He has to change our hearts so that we will freely love him. Otherwise, we never will. And then the Bible defines what good is. Romans 8.28 is not a promise to a pain-free, easy life, free of trials and tribulations. No. In verse 29, Paul describes what our ultimate good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's our ultimate good, Christ-likeness, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And God promises us that whatever comes our way in 2022, it's all going to have the effect, if if we're believers, of making us more and more like Jesus. That's what trials do. That's what difficulties do. Do. That's even what pleasant things in our lives ultimately do. They, they make us thankful to Jesus. They make us look forward to spending more time with Jesus, ultimately in glory. Augustine of Hippo, the church father, wrote concerning this great promise, Romans eight twenty eight and 29. Because of this promise, Augustine wrote... That we should trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. We believe in the God of providence. And so we should be optimistic about the new year. Thirdly, a reason to be optimistic, God will Keep us. God will keep us. Romans 8.28 promises that. Romans 8.28 assures us that everyone who's a believer will continue to be a believer, but there are many, many passages that assure true believers of their eternal security. But there's one passage in particular, 1 Peter 1.5 five that, pro- that uh, specifies why believers are eternally secure. It's not because of us. It's because of God who preserves us. In 1 Peter 1.5, Peter writes that believers are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 is uh, one of a bunch of verses in the, in the New Testament that refer to our salvation in the future tense, which is interesting. On the one hand, there's the past tense of our salvation. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, Ephesians 2.8, and that's true. If you're a believer, you have been saved. But at the same time, we're told to look forward to the future manifestation of our salvation. And that's what 1 Peter 1.5 says. We we are looking forward to salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's this, uh, this consummate form or manifestation of our salvation, which is not here yet. We're looking forward to that. And that's what God saves us for. Not to be saved temporarily, only to lose it, but he saves us in order that we would look forward to the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. And until that comes, God keeps us. We are kept not by our own power, but by the power of, of God through faith, which itself is a gift from God. That's why um, I think it was last time we were in Romans chapter 8, we uh, considered what Paul wrote in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, and we are, but through him who loved us, God keeps us and he will keep us in 2022. And God's keeping of us as his people includes the difficulties that we will face in the new year. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul wrote, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That's God's promise to us. We can be assured that we're going to be tempted and tried in many ways, but at the same time, we have God's promise word that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. He's going to provide a way of escape. He's going to ensure by his power that we will be able to bear it. That's why we shouldn't fear what 2022 has in store for us. Fourthly, Why do we have reason for optimism in the new year? Because Jesus will succeed in building his church. Jesus will succeed in building his church. And we uh, refer to this passage a lot, but here it is again. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There will be opposition. There will be enemies. There are enemies. There are adversaries, including our great adversary, the devil who roams about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But against all of those foes, Jesus Promises us, I will build my church. The Bible does not present to us a Savior who has any possibility of failing in his saving work. He is going to succeed, he knows that he is going to succeed. He also promised in John 6 and verse 37 all that the Father has given me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will by no means cast out when the world is focused on COVID or the next pandemic or natural disasters or Wars and rumors of wars, politics, economics, whatever it is the world focuses its attention on. Jesus is busy now, and he will continue to be busy in the new year, saving souls and adding them to his church. People may not notice. It won't grab Headlines, but it'll take place nevertheless. The kingdom of God marches on. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ continues to be built because of its faithful builder, Jesus himself. He will succeed in building his church. We have his promise on that. And then number five... A fifth reason for optimism in the new year, Jesus will be with us. Jesus will be with us. Matthew 18 and verse 20, after Jesus um, outlines the general procedure for church discipline, in which, by the way, he talks about the church when there wasn't a church, properly speaking. But that's why Jesus came into the world, for his church. But he said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That's a tremendous promise. Whenever believers gather themselves together, even Two or three. To do what Jesus has commanded us to do. To lift up the name of Jesus. To glorify Jesus, our great God and Savior. He promises, I am there in the midst of them. It's interesting, he says, I am there. There. It's not just, I will be there, though that's true, but he says, I am there in the midst of them. It's assured and it's continual. It'll always be that way. Jesus will always be with his people to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them, to bless them, to sympathize with them. I am there in the midst of them. And he gave a similar promise at the end of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. You remember the rest of the Great Commission. He commands his disciples, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.'" teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's the end of the age? When our salvation will be revealed, like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.5, when our salvation is consummated. But Jesus wants his disciples to know I am with you. You always. He's given us a big task. The discipling of the nations. But he's also given us great resources himself. I I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's why William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, said... Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God because Jesus will be with us. And then thinking more individually, Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And frankly, I believe that the news media these days, and it's hankering after ratings, um, different folks in different areas of the political spectrum, I think that they're specializing in fear. A lot of people in our culture want to make us afraid of COVID, the economy, the future of America, potential war with China or Iran or Russia, whatever. There seems to be gain in fear, in making people afraid. But the Bible wants to assure us that because Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, we can be bold, we can know that the Lord is our helper, and we cannot fear. Jesus will be with us in 2022 no matter what else is true about the new year. Number six, Jesus is not done with Ridgecrest. Jesus is not done with Ridgecrest. And and here I don't have the same uh, power or authority in terms of... um, a specific pronouncement from the Word of God, and no, I'm not a prophet. But look with me in Acts chapter 18, and I'll explain why I believe that this passage should make us optimistic. Acts chapter 18 and verse 10. Well, actually, uh, backing up to verse 9. In fact, we'll back up earlier than that. Paul is in Corinth. There's lots of opposition. In verse 5, Paul was occupied with the, with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him... He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So that's the scene. And this is usually the case with the word of God. There's often opposition. Many people, it turns out, reject it. They reject the gospel, the best news in the history of the world. The only message by which they can be saved, and yet they self-destructively reject it. But at the same time, at the same time, there will always be people who will believe until Jesus comes again. But here's Paul in Corinth, and yes, there were people there were people who were believing and being baptized. But at the same time, there were many people rejecting the gospel. And because of that, Paul was tempted to leave. Paul was tempted to give up on the city of Corinth. He had reached the conclusion you know what? I don't need this. I'm going to go someplace else where the gospel will actually be received. But Jesus had different plans for the Apostle Paul. And so in verse 9 we read, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people That's basically a restatement of John 6:37 All that the Father gives me will come to me That's basically a restatement of that promise in John 6:37 to the particular place and time of Corinth where Paul was Jesus is reminding Paul What you have experienced so far is not the end of the story. I have people there. I have people there whom I am determined to save. I have people there, many people there, who are going to believe the gospel. They're going to put their trust in me as their Lord and Savior they're going to be added to the church. And sure enough, sure enough, Jesus, through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, established a church in Corinth in spite of first impressions. And we have the books of First and Second Corinthians and the New Testament canon as testimony of that. But... The wording of Jesus, I think, is very instructive to us. Don't be afraid. Don't shut your mouth. Keep on speaking. I'm with you. I have many people. I have many in this city who are my people. By the way, as a side note, as a side note, notice that this little pulling back of the veil into God's eternal plan. That's what this is. Jesus pulls back the veil and he reveals to Paul a secret, a small subset of the eternal counsel of God, namely, there are many of God's people in Corinth who are going to be saved. Notice that that revelation from God, of his secret counsel to Paul did not make Paul passive. This assurance of success from Jesus, this revelation that there are people who are going to be saved did not make Paul relax and think, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to go on and take a vacation. I'm going to stay inside uh, uh, Titius' house where it's safe. I'm going to let go and let God do the work that he promised he's going to accomplish because after all, Jesus just just told me that there are many people who are going to be saved in Corinth so he doesn't need me. That's obviously not Paul's reaction because Paul had his theology correct. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God has his plan, his role, his will, but then he's given things for us to do. It doesn't mean that he depends on us or that he needs us. God did not depend on Paul or need Paul, but still he gave Paul the tremendous privilege of being used, an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. And that's the same thing for us. But this revelation of the, Uh, eternal counsel of God to Paul knowing that there would be people who would be saved knowing that there would be success in Corinth instead motivated Paul. So in verse 11 and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Here's what makes me think about Ridgecrest. In case you didn't know, there's a trend afoot. There has been for some time, uh, at least a year or more, of people in Ridgecrest moving out of California, uh, especially more conservative-minded people. And our church has been affected by that. We've lost uh, a lot of families and individuals who have left California. And I would name their names to you, except it depresses me. So <laughs> you, you understand what I'm talking about. And that movement is not done. There are more people in our church body who are going to be leaving Ridgecrest and leaving California. And, and God bless them. They have every right to do that. They're, they're free, and I'm, and I'm happy for them. But here's my point. Here's my point. It turns out that in our town, as people are leaving, there are still people who are coming. I don't know if it's, if it's a, um, a, a net gain or if it's a zero-sum gain. I wouldn't be surprised if we might be losing some population by the time all of this is said and done but I'm pretty sure that the city of Ridgecrest isn't going to lose a lot of people it's not going it's not going to disappear I don't think it's going to the population's going to be cut in half I think that we're still going to be looking at around this is this is my prediction that we're still going to be looking at 28,000 people or so in the city of Ridgecrest, and guess what? Those 28,000 people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. There's, I've heard, I've, I've looked it up on the internet, I've searched on churches in Ridgecrest before, and there's between 30 and 35 churches in Ridgecrest. And they're small, by and large a mega church in Ridgecrest would have several hundred people. And you know what I'm talking about, right? And if you add up all of those churches and you think about the the numbers of people who regularly attend church in Ridgecrest, I I come up with on the order of 2,000 or so. Let's say 3,000. Let's say we should be way more optimistic and say 3,000, so roughly percent. That means there's like 25,000 people in Ridgecrest who don't associate with, with other believers. And then on top of that, you realize that Ridgecrest is something of a bastion for Mormons. Are you aware of that? Kevin Specht, are you aware of that? Yes. There's two stakes, north and South and they're they're very active. Uh, I'm not sure that they're leaving people or losing people. Excuse me, I, I haven't asked. There is a Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall. Uh, there's Saint Anne's, and with all due respect, I mean we're one with Catholics on a number of social and cultural issues. But when it comes down to what the gospel is we do not believe the same gospel as the Roman Catholic Church historically. I'm not saying that all Catholics are not Christians. I don't believe that for an instant. But you get my point. There is still plenty of gospel work to do in Ridgecrest. Ridgecrest needs more gospel workers, not less. The need is not going away. And so when I think of Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, and I think of Jesus saving people in Ridgecrest historically and raising up our church historically, and then I think about what the Lord has done for our church, providing for this facility that none of us ever thought of in our various... Um, efforts at buying a building or building a building in the past, we didn't think of this place. And I drove past it almost every day and didn't, never entered my thought. And then the way that, um, in God's providence, that connection was made, and Bill Corley sat in Dr. Danielson's dental chair, and then, and they had a conversation in which Dr. Danielson does all the talking and the patient does all the listening. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, Pastor Corley found out that we were perhaps thinking of a uh, building, and so uh, Bill, uh, Bill ends up calling me, and then he puts me in touch with Gary Charlon. and next thing you know, here we are. And then last year during the lockdown, when... Um, We didn't just repave the parking lot. We completely redesigned and re-engineered the parking lot. And my assumption, we all knew we had to do it. My assumption is we can't afford to do it, or if we do do it, we're going to have to borrow the money. And that was the path we began to go down. And then a bunch of members talked to the church officers and said, why don't you ask the congregation... And we did that. And you know what happened? Everyone donated money and we paid for that stinking thing in cash. And it was on the order of like $280,000. And then more gifts came in and we did the the landscaping. The the Lord did that. The Lord planted this church in 2004. The Lord saved the soul's here that he did over that time. The Lord restored marriages. The Lord sanctified saints. The Lord provided the building and the funds for the parking lot and whatever. The Lord has brought us this far for a particular purpose, the purpose being the salvation of souls, the lifting up of his name. I have to believe I have to believe that these words apply to us. I have many in this city who are my people. I can't believe, I don't believe that the Lord would have planted us here, provided for us in the way that he has only to drop us now. I can't believe that. Do you remember the story of the Israelites under Samuel when Samuel first became a, a judge in Israel? In 1 Samuel chapter 7, um, it was one of those occasions when their perpetual enemies, the Philistines, rose up and attacked the nation of Israel. And, and God intervened and discourage the Philippines and embolden the Israelites, and the Israelites defeated the Philippines in battle. And we're told that Samuel, on that occasion, took a stone and uh, he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, The Lord has helped us. Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And that's good for us to remember as individuals, families, and as a church. Look look back at your life. Look at how the Lord has been with you, and he has helped you, and he has blessed you, and he has delivered you. The Lord wants each one of us to have an Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. The Lord has not brought you or me or us to this moment in time only to drop us. In fact, I have a challenge for you. Are you ready? Do you see our nativity scene up here on the table? By the way, do you know that uh, one of our deacons made that table up here by hand? It's just beautiful. But anyway, eventually, probably this afternoon, I'm guessing, or soon thereafter, the nativity scene will be gone. So are you ready for my challenge? A a challenge is, if you're artistically inclined, go make an, an Ebenezer go make a stone of help. Find a rock in the desert of whatever size, whatever shape, whatever color, and decorate it, but make it an Ebenezer, a stone of help, and put some on that, on that table. And we'll leave them up there for a while as a, as a reminder that thus far the Lord has helped us. Can you do that? Yeah. Do, all right, good. Awesome. All right, number seven, and finally. Here's a reason to be optimistic in the new year. Every hour brings us closer to Christ's return. So this is true whether it's the beginning of a new year or not. Every succeeding moment brings us closer to Christ's return. In Romans 13 and verse 11, Paul wrote, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Another passage that refers to the future tense of our salvation um, our salvation being nearer in Romans 13 and verse 11 is, when, is uh, the same thing as the redemption of our bodies in Romans chapter 8. When, when we're going to be glorified, body and soul. And so Paul says, every hour that goes by, we are closer, we are nearer to our ultimate, final salvation, when our bodies will be redeemed, we will be glorified like Jesus is glorified. And by the way, that will happen when Christ comes again on the day of the Lord. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And that will be true every day of 2022 unless the Lord comes in the middle of 2022. 22. And we should be looking forward to that. We should be living in light of that. We should have our treasure invested thinking of that. Revelation 22 and verse 20, the Apostle John writes, He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus, Surely I am coming quickly. And then John's response, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May it be. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take these things to heart. Help us to not look at the new year or any segment of time or any experience that we have or life itself. Help us to not look at reality the way unbelievers do and forgive us, we pray, for the extent to which we do. But Lord, help us to have hope as your children. Help us to look at life through the lens of your word And we know, Lord, that we've only scratched the surface with what your word says about why of all people we should be filled with optimism. We pray, Lord, that your word would have its desired effect. We pray that you would build up your people in the most holy faith and that you would call sinners to yourself and in all of it, Jesus Christ will be lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.